Hello and welcome. This is Nico Beitenach and we're on the last episode of our Kelsen reading series. Today we'll be doing the final chapter, chapter 8, on interpretation. And because it's kind of a short chapter, I thought that, and the last one, I thought that it would be a good time to also just do a kind of a summary or final thoughts about Carlson's A Pure Theory of Law. Then, of course, the current season of the reading series really ends with the next video, which is an interview with Lars Vinks, a Carlson expert, to put it all together for us in a bigger context. So, let's get to the final chapter of a pure theory of law interpretation. So to start with, Kelsen makes a distinction between two important sides of interpretation, the two contexts in which interpretation happens in the law. The first is by a law applying organ, such as a court or perhaps a civil servant who is interpreting the law with the intent of actually applying it, and his decision has legal effect. And on the other hand, legal interpretation as done by someone without this competence, so a legal scholar, or a lawyer giving his opinion, or a lay person trying to find out what their legal position is. So you can guess that the more important of this in society is the first type the interpretation by a law applying person or organ. So the interpretation of a norm always takes place within the hierarchy of a bigger norm. The current norm is always somewhere below a bigger context or framework, which helps us interpret it. And interpretation is needed because this lower norm is in some sense or another a bit vague. This can be intentionally or unintentionally. Kelsen says if the lower norm is too strict, not vague enough, it doesn't leave enough freedom for the discretion of the law applying organ. We know that the law cannot hope to enumerate every single situation and thus has to be a bit vague in order to be workable and thus necessitates a level of interpretation when it's being applied. So that vagary that creates the need for legal interpretation can be intentional, but it can also be unintentional. So what the interpreter has to do in this case is, given the higher norm, Carlson says, determine the frame in which the lower norm that is to be interpreted is moving inside of. So the frame that we choose determines the content that we give to the lower norm moving in here. So it's the frame that guides us. But then Carlson becomes very clear. He says that there are many possible frames within which to interpret and you have to choose one over others. And how you exercise this choice is an act of will. There is no necessarily correct frame. So 
What the pure theory can't do is it can't suggest or recommend the best frame within which to interpret. The interpreter has to choose that frame because for a pure theory of law, all of these frames are equal. And the pure theory cannot decide on the correct frame because choosing this frame, it's an act of will, meaning it's an extra legal consideration. It's a political decision, which frame you give preference to when interpreting a norm. So this frame can be a certain interest or certain values, whatever. You can hear from that that that's already not a legal consideration, that's probably a political consideration. And thus, the pure theory cannot say what is a correct interpretation given a certain frame. It would be the same as to say that there's something like a correct statute, it doesn't matter, or you can't say that, you know. It's only, the question is only is it legal or not, not whether it's correct or incorrect by an extra legal measurement. So interpretation always has the element of cognition, legal cognition that is involved in interpreting the specific norm. But the frame that it happens in is an act of will. And when this process is complete by an organ with the mandate to do so, law is created. So that's the first type. This differs from the second type. We said the perhaps the legal academic or the layperson trying to interpret. The big difference is their interpretation does not create law. It's not enforceable. It's just an opinion. So what the legal expert can do, or the layperson, is only to show different possible interpretations of a norm. And after these different possibilities have been laid out, that's all the legal scientist can do. Choosing one as preferable over others, again, is a political decision. So the legal scientist, legal academic, can stay within his sphere as long as he's laying out the different interpretations on the table. But as soon as he expresses a preference, it's an extra legal opinion that he's giving. To summarize, Kelson writes, and I'm quoting directly, he says, it is from a scientific and hence objective point of view, inadmissible to proclaim solely correct an interpretation that from a subjectively political viewpoint is more desirable than another, logically equally possible interpretation. So we see that's it for Carlson on interpretation. It's a very short chapter. Um, Carlson has also been criticized for taking such a hands-off approach on interpretation and not getting stuck into it that he doesn't offer us much in the way of helping with interpretation. He kind of sidesteps the question by deferring to, to the difference between politics and law. But yes, that's what he does in this book, for better or for worse. So that's it for the pure theory of law. We made it all the way through. And 
I think it's a good time to wrap up and take some of the more prescient thoughts that we had in the reading of this book. I think there are three important themes for me that kept reappearing in the book that I would like to highlight to end off with, namely the idea of purity, the role of ideology in legal theory, and finally, the relationship between the law and the state. So let's start with the title of the book, the first theme, Purity, and what this means for Kelsen. The term purity really cuts to almost every part of this book. And in understanding that, I think, is key. So I think what is important to always keep in mind when reading Kelsen and this book is that Kelsen is self-proclaimed a big Kantian. And it is from Kant that this idea of purity comes from so powerfully for Kelsen. As we know, Kant was interested in pure reason. For Kant, purity means cognition without any outside influence, pure cognition. And this is the way that Kelsen wants to approach law. Also, in his critique of practical reason, Kant says that where he analyzes morals, Kant says that we cannot derive a moral law from the content of its prescriptions or of its norms. We can only divine these laws, these universal laws, from the form. And that is how Kant gets to the categorical imperative. It's a formal definition of morality, not a content-filled definition. In other words, you know, Kant gives the test of the structure of a moral law. He doesn't give us the content of the moral laws. Now, of course, Kelsen tries to remove law and morals as much as possible, but it's a similar move. He defines law not by its content, but by its form. Remember, it's a valid order of norms backed up by uh, coercion. What the content of the laws are is of secondary or of no importance to Kelsen. So this is how Kelsen approaches it. Law is fully in the phenomenal world, not the noumenal world. And he does this for good reason. He's trying to, if we remember the first chapters, he's trying to unburden his legal theory from at least two different approaches. The first is, of course, natural law theory. So he says natural law theory cannot give us form. It can only give us content. That's why we have to get away from that. On the other hand, he wants to get away from th these kind of overly 
scientific, methodologically mixed approaches to law, found in realism or, or such, which he describes as a sociological or political methodology applied to law. And then that's fine, you can do that, but then it's not a legal theory. So legal theory has to fight on both sides, between natural law and kind of sociological or political approaches. The pure theory is a purely legal approach. We also see Kant's influence in Kelsen through Kelsen's liberalism. We know he became increasingly interested in international. The pure theory book has a chapter on international law, but after that book, after the German version, Kelsen already started writing more books on international law specifically. And in the pure theory, he talks of uh, this kind of coming world state, perhaps. So, and we know that Kant was an important figure in the development of this cosmopolitan liberalism, this family of nations that Kelsen also subscribes to. So this Kantian purity thesis, I think, is one of the most vital contexts in which to read Kelsen, probably by his own admission in many parts. The second theme is that of ideology. And we saw that Kelsen often talks about ideology in different contexts in this book. And that one of the aims of the pure theory is to get rid of ideological thinking when we think about the law. For example, he says that property law and property relations is a product of ideology, capitalist ideology. He also says that separating the law and the state is a kind of an ideology that should get rid of because the law and the state is the same thing. In the chapter on international law, he talks about the two ways to interpret or to understand international law and national law. And he also says, these are open for ideological abuse. It's one, one possibility is, is that it can be used for empire or to justify empire. And even as we saw now in interpretation, whichever frame you choose is a political or ideological choice. And thus, Kelsen doesn't want to say which frame. The lawyer has to steer clear from ideology or the legal scientist. And finally, the last theme is that between the law and the state. So as we know, he says that we can't separate them from one another at all, that the state is only a legal construct and not more than that. In a sense, this ties in, or this is consistent with what he says about persons, about corporations. He says even a human being, even a corporation, 
is nothing more than a bundle or a cluster of norms. Now, I mean, I think there's something to this idea. There's also some criticism we can have of that. One would be, of course, and I think Kelson also talks about this in the book in the sense of when he says that the object under scrutiny depends on the person doing the observing. You know, the object changes depending on who's observing it. And of course, then if we observe the state from the point of view of law or legal theory, then the state looks like law. It looks just like a bundle of norms. A human being looks like a bundle of norms. The way a lawyer and a doctor looks at a person fundamentally changes the definition of a person for each of them, right? Same with the state. And, you know, Kelson talks about why this ideology of how can the state be somehow above the law but also subject to the law? This, of course, is also a question of power. He criticizes the Rechtsstaat. For a state to present itself as a legal state is not a loss of its power to law. Practically speaking, it vastly increases the power of a state if it's able to legitimize itself through showing that it holds itself accountable to the people somehow. States are much more powerful because of that compared to earlier states and if we think about the legitimacy. But yes, this, the state is this bundle of norms. It's something that Kelsen admits exists in the ideal world, not the real world. But nevertheless, those are my thoughts on the book, of course more, but we can keep discussing that Thank you so much for sticking to the end with us. I really appreciate it. Next, we're going to read Heart, although I think I'm going to take a little break first before that and hopefully make better videos in terms of production quality. That's my hope. And please check out the interview with Lars Vinks coming after this video. And thank you very much and I will see you again soon. Goodbye.